On the other side, our uh, Wednesday roundtable, and it'll be interesting to pursue this line again with Ernie Eves, former Premier of Ontario, when he sat in the catbird seat there with uh, Mike Harris. He understood about the chaos that ensued and uh, early days of the Common Sense Revolution. So we'll see what he has to say on this whole thing, uh, along with John Turley-Ewart and our friend Buzz Hargrove. It'll be interesting. I wanted to pose to Buzz a question about Jerry Diaz on this program yesterday, the head of Unifor, successor to Buzz, when he headed up the uh, Canadian Auto Workers Union, because there's a story of Unifor representing on a local out in Gander, Newfoundland, where it's an American aerospace company, and they're playing hardball. They've locked the workers out for 21 months, some 30-odd, and now they've got replacement workers that Jerry Diaz referred to as scabs, and he was rather unflattering and uncomplimentary, uh, believing that what Unifor has decided to do in this instance is take some of their uh, Facebook postings, public postings, and off of Twitter as well, and uh, do mashups and sort of post them as naming and shaming types of uh, offerings. And some of these people have now been outed in this small community of 10,000. But this was Diaz weighing in yesterday whether or not that this was a justifiable move to make. I spent one minute on Google, Googling jobs in Gander, and there are jobs everywhere. So this argument that, look, some of the scabs left full-time jobs to cross the picket line. All right, uh, since I've got a union guy here, Dave Sparrow, the national president of ACTRA, we can jump the gun mm-hmm. and get right to it. I mean, for a union to do this, I understand there's exasperation, 21 months, you're locked out, uh, a lot of people, you know, are worried about their jobs, but this is also a community where the unemployment rate is over 14%. People are desperate, so uh, some of their fellow citizens decide they're going to take the jobs does that justify Unifor taking this route to name and shame i would personally say no i i don't think that naming and shaming people and being uh, brutal about that and ruining their reputations and etc is a good tact for a union however as you've pointed out the frustration and pressure after being locked out for 21 months the the uh, penalty that those uh, employees ha- have uh, have paid and the fact that the uh, employer has not obviously been willing to come back to the table and reach a settlement uh, makes it they've reached a point where they have to do something and perhaps they similar to our last discussion are bringing a cannon to a fist fight and that's probably not a good thing <laughs> Dan the, even just the optics here of this I mean uh, you know I guess it may you tell me if you believe it might reinforce a stereotype a certain stereotype of uh, Union bullying, I think thugs. It, I, I think that the unions are in their best spot when they're, you know, David and, and the, the employer's Goliath, right? And I think that anything that they do uh, to reverse those roles or to appear to be bullying, uh, you know, uh, citizens that are, you know, looking to make a living and, and, and you know, make ends meet, uh, it, it doesn't look very good for them. And so I think that's what they're struggling with here. And probably, uh, you're right, they're, they're, it's born in frustration, it's born in this, the length of the strike, uh, but it's certainly a poorly perceived tactic, and it's certainly not going to win them any friends. Anthony? Well, well, you know, you mentioned the thuggishness and so forth. I mean, I have not actually really thought of Canadian unions, public or private, in that capacity, you know, really ever, not in many years have I seen an incident like that. So it, it does make you think of it now, and this other stuff that's going on in Owen Sound as well that seems particularly ugly. So it's unfortunate because, you know, you can agree or disagree with what their grievances are, but it's never really looked this nasty before, so it doesn't look good on them. All right. You know, uh, because we are perceived as the kinder, gentler nation, and we do have, uh, I would say, some distinct characteristics uh, nationally, 
There is an argument being made. I, I hope it's not too tenuous a stretch here, but uh, even when it comes to the NAFTA talks, that our cultural uh, industries be opened as uh, opposed to, you know, uh, retaining what we have uh, up until this point. Justin Trudeau says it's non-negotiable because these are the things that define us. Dave Sparrow, I mean, you come from this background. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're the uh, national president of ACTRA. That's film, TV, all these wonderful things. Uh but would there be a problem with certain TV networks, for example, under American ownership? Would that be a problem in Canada? I would say it'd be a, a huge problem. And, and here's why. Is the broad cultural exemption under NAFTA allows each of the three countries, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, to invest in their own own culture. And that culture extends beyond film and television. It goes into uh, museums and festivals and music and all those things that help define our nation's culture. And we need to protect that because there are other provisions within NAFTA that would suggest that if that exemption didn't exist, then we could actually be sued by the Disney's and the Netflix's and similar by saying, oh, you give special dispensation to Canadians through through your government, therefore we're going to sue you and, and they would win. We uh, need to continue to be a sovereign nation and to hold up our own values and project our culture to the world, and we become very good at it. And, you know, CanCon, which some people kind of wince over, uh, basically built the Canadian music industry. And anywhere you go in the States, mention BTO, mention Rush, mention Ann Murray, mention Gordon Nickelback. Lightfoot. Nickelback. Nickelback. Um, whatever <laughs> it is, um, is, is it actually has worked in our favor and it's put Canada on the map. And that's a good thing. Look, I, I would say that when we're talking about this issue, let's put it in perspective in the sense that we're not talking about uh, there not being a complete limitation of any cultural content crossing the border or being right. sold and, and, and consumed in, in each other's countries. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, we've got celebrities right now uh, or global music stars that are from here in, in this city that are, you know, dominating the, the charts like Drake, right? And so uh, there, there is the ability still to consume American film, American television in this country and pay for it. We're talking about ownership restrictions. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that those ownership restrictions are important to preserve in terms of the integrity of our cultural industry, in terms of the ability to have uh, networks like this one that we're on right now Canadian owned and Canadian operated and ensuring that we're not seeing sort of this, uh, you know, multinational ownership structure that really doesn't put a Canadian content first. Well, all right. But if it's owned by somebody, uh, multinational ownership, uh, it's just good business that they would still uh, subscribe to local content at the local uh, stage of things. So, Anthony, does it matter where the ownership is? And I can see David wants in here, but, you know, there are some there are some examples where, of course, people are choosing Canadian content. Uh, Netflix and Crave are investing in, in, in different Canadian content because that's what the viewer wants. Hugely successful shows like, you know, Letterkenny. People don't particularly know or care that they're CanCon. They just love uh, the show. Uh, as for the, the, the sort of rules of, of, of the business deals and so forth, I mean, we, we can open it up to some degree in the way that we do with uh, currently right now purchases for intellectual property and security deals and so forth. The feds review them to make sure it is in the national interest. So we, we can take these things as we see them. But to David's point, it would get a little bizarre if you get to the point where Disney can sue you because you have given a grant to a particular television company. And that's what I, I think, no, we have, Canadians want to talk about, you know, why is this movie getting $3 million of taxpayer dollars? And let's have that conversation, but we shouldn't be sued by Disney because we did it. All right, let's come back. We'll have time uh, for one or two more topics worthy of discussion. Dan Moulton, Anthony Fury, Dave Sparrow on the Oak the show 